Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us today on World Footprints Radio. It's a great day to travel and leave positive footprints. We're your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we're going to take you places where nobody else does. If you're joining us for the first time, thank you and welcome to our world of socially conscious and responsible travel. Who do we have on board today, hon? Dear, we have a pretty exciting show lineup as we will travel into the world of marriage, global volunteering, and on an unexpected circumnavigation of the world. First, World Footprints talks to best-selling author Dr. Gary Chapman about his book, The Five Love Languages, and we'll walk through the different languages that every couple should know. Dr. Chapman joins us to talk about his experiences teaching new love languages around the world. Then we'll introduce you to Colin Salisbury, founder of Global Volunteer Network. He joins us to talk about how his organization is connecting people with communities throughout the world. Finally, you'll meet Eric and Christy Grab, a great adventurous couple who took a break from corporate America to circumnavigate the world in a 43-foot trawler powerboat. Eric and Christy spent two years visiting 100 places and 34 countries around the world. Hear how they did it and why they chose to travel by boat with limited boating experience. We welcome your comments at any time about anything we're doing. Email us at comments at worldfootprints.com. And guess what, everybody? We're heading back to one of our favorite cities, New Orleans, this Saturday. So tune in to blogtalkradio.com backslash World Footprints to listen to our live interviews from the French Quarter Festival. And for those of you wishing to stop by our live broadcast during French Quarter Festival, we'll be located at the Media Center on the second floor of the Hard Rock Cafe. Our show will begin broadcasting at 11 o'clock Central Time, noon Eastern Time, for two hours. So we'd love to see you if you're in New Orleans. Certainly love to uh, have you join us on our show on Saturday, April 9th, between 11 and 1 Central Time. And of course, in between those times, we'd love to have you join us in real time from our Facebook and Twitter social networks. And there are links to those networks and others, including our newsletter, on our website, worldfootprints.com. When you travel to another country, you expect that you'll need to know some basic foreign words and phrases in order to communicate and get around. Sharing a greeting or finding the loo or the train station are important things when you're in a foreign land. But when you enter a love relationship, you don't necessarily realize that you're also entering foreign territory where up to five different languages are spoken. You won't need a passport, but you'll need to understand what language your partner is speaking. Dr. Gary Chapman is an internationally renowned expert on marriage, family, and relationships. He's been married for 45 years, and he knows all about the different love languages. Dr. Chapman has offered the five love languages, which consistently has been on the New York Times bestsellers list for the last 20 years, and has now been translated in over 40 different languages. Dr. Chapman, welcome to World Footprints. Well, thank you, Tanya. Good to be with you and Ian. Thank you. Well, you know, me saying I love Ian is different than uh, than expressing love for our cat Irwin or my love of good food. And, and those things are quite distinguishable. So why is love within a relationship so complicated? 
Well, you know, I think it's like a lot of other things. In a marriage relationship, for example, we often are attracted to someone who is different from us in, a numer- in numerous ways. And one of those ways is in how we give and receive love. And often uh, I found in my own counseling experience that uh, couples can be very sincere in expressing love to each other, but it's not necessarily getting through to the other person because they receive love in a different way. So what I discovered, I went through about 12 years of the notes that I had made when I was counseling people and asked myself, when someone sat in my office and said, I feel like my spouse doesn't love me, what did they want? What were they complaining about? And their answers fell into five categories, and I later call them the five love languages. Well, let's briefly describe what those five uh, love languages are, starting with words of affirmation. Words of affirmation, simply giving the person verbal affirmation. It can focus on their personality. It can focus on something they did for you. It can focus on the way they look. Uh, It can simply be the words, I love you. But it's using words to affirm the other person. You can speak the words. You can write the words. You could even sing the words, or some people could. (laughs) So uh, it's using words to affirm the other person. And then you have quality time and uh, as, as, as another language. Quality time is giving the person your undivided attention. I'm not talking about sitting in the same room watching television. <laughs> Someone else has your attention. TV is off. Magazine is down. You're looking at each other. You're interacting. You're listening. They have your undivided attention. So football Sundays don't count. (laughs) What? Football Sundays don't count. Football Sundays will not count. You know, I know there are guys who can watch the game and read a magazine and hear everything their wife says. (laughs) That is not quality time. (laughs) (laughs) And, And then there's receiving gifts. Receiving gifts. My academic background is anthropology, the study of cultures. We've never discovered a culture where gift giving is not an expression of love. It's universal to give gifts as an expression of love. The gift says, he was thinking about me. Look what he got for me, or look what she got for me. Now, the gift need not be expensive. We've always said it's the thought that counts. But I remind you, it is not the thought left in your head that counts. It's the gift that came out of the thought in your head. <laughs> and, and then there's acts of service, which I happen to know is one of my husband's love languages. All right. It's doing something for the other person you know they would like for you to do. Cooking a meal, washing dishes, vacuuming floors, mowing grass, changing the baby's diaper, getting white spots off the mirror, anything you know the other person would like for you to do. And you're right, for some people, this is their primary love language. This is what really makes them feel loved. Mm -hmm. And then finally, there's physical touch. We've long known the emotional power of physical touch. That's why we pick up babies and hold them and kiss them and cuddle them. And long before the baby understands the meaning of the word love, the baby feels love by physical touch. In marriage, I'm talking about such things as holding hands, kissing, embracing, the whole sexual part of the marriage, physical touch can be a powerful communicator of emotional love. 
Now, Dr. Chapman, if uh, one member is more dominant, let's say, in terms of acts of service and uh, the other is more open to physical touch, how do we go about reconciling these preferences in uh, love language? Well, you know, the key is that we have to learn to speak the other person's language. Uh, All of us have a primary love language. It's very similar to spoken language. Everyone grows up speaking a language with a dialect. I grew up speaking English Southern style, okay? But everyone has a language and a dialect, and that's the one they understand best. Same thing is true with love. So if your spouse's primary language is acts of service and your language is physical touch, what you will typically do to show love to the other person is you'll reach out and touch them. You'll want to hug them. You'll want to kiss them. And in your mind, you're communicating love. But if acts of service is their language, I can tell you they're not getting it. It's not meaning to them what it would mean to you. So the key is you have to learn how to do acts of service. They have to learn how to speak physical touch. But the good news is all of these languages can be learned. You may not have received them growing up. And, uh, and so as an adult, they may not feel natural to you. But you can learn how to speak all of these languages. And for a successful long-term relationship, you have to learn how to speak the other person's language. Your book has been translated into more than 40 languages. How receptive have other cultures been to you when you do your speaking engagements abroad and these principles that you speak of, especially considering within a lot of parts of the world that divorce rates are skyrocketing for a number of reasons? Yeah, You know, this is the thing that surprised me, Ian, because of my background in anthropology. Uh, when the first publisher came, which happened to be the Spanish publisher, and they wanted to publish this book in Spanish, I said to my American publisher, I don't know if this works in Spanish. You know, I learned this in middle America, and I don't know if it works in Spanish. And they said, well, they've read the book, and they say it works. I said, okay, let them, let them print it. So they published it, and it became immediately their bestseller, and it's been their bestseller ever since they published it. And then came the French and the German and on, on, you know, around the world. So I, I, I was very leery uh, as to whether this was a universal concept. But now that the book's been translated in 40 languages and has also sold over 6 million copies in English, I'm a little more confident that these five languages tend to be universal. Now, obviously, they have different dialects in different cultures. Uh, for example, there are different kind of touches and there are different ways to spend quality time. But the fundamental languages seem to have transcend, seem to transcend culture, and uh, in marriages all over the all over the country, all over the world, I've had people say to me, you know, we read that book, it was like the lights came on, and we understood why we've been missing each other through the years, and we tried speaking the right language, and when we did, there was a new emotional warmth that came into our relationship. So that's been extremely encouraging to me. One of the things that we are cognizant of is the high divorce rate in the United States. And I know that Sweden has the second highest divorce rate. And Asian countries are seemingly growing in divorce. Why do you think this is happening? And what's accounting for some of the growth that we're seeing in divorce? Is it related to the economy? Or are there things that uh, have nothing to do with that? I don't think it has a great deal to do with the economy. 
I think it has to, to do more with expectations. I think uh, Hollywood movies have, have taken our culture down a road that says the important thing in life is to be happy, and we've lost the concept of commitment, and we're looking for happiness. So couples get married, and they come down off the emotional high of the in-love experience, which incidentally only lasts two years. That's the average. And then we come down, and if we don't feel loved and we don't feel happy, then we begin to think, you know, I married the wrong person. This is not working. We're too different. And then someone else comes along, and we get an emotional feeling for them, and we chase that rainbow. And as you well know, or probably know, Divorce rate in second marriages is far higher than the divorce rate in first marriages. And third marriages is even higher. So the answer is obviously not running from one relationship to another. The answer is learning how to love the person to whom you're now married. And uh, that's why I think this book has helped so many couples. Uh, You know, they realize if we speak each other's language, we can keep emotional love alive in our relationship. Hmm. You know, uh, during during your travels, um, as Ian mentioned earlier, you know, you've traveled the world uh, presenting on the five love languages. I'm just curious if there is a, a destination or a story of a person or a couple um, that you met, you know, during the course of, uh, of teaching about the five languages or even just during your personal travels. That there's something that's really transformed and, and touched you. You know, I had a couple say to me, I think this was in Germany or France, because I covered both those countries on the same trip, and I had a couple say to me, we had been married for 20 years, and to be honest with you, we were just roommates. We were living in the same house, we were being cordial to each other, but we had no warmth, we had no emotional intimacy in our relationship. And uh, the husband read the book first, and uh, thought to himself, I wish I had known this 20 years ago. I think our marriage would have been different. He said, I gave the book to my wife and asked her if she would read it. She read it, and two weeks later she said to me, I finished that book, and he said, what what did you think of it? And she said, I think if we had read that book 20 years ago, our marriage would have been different. And he said, you know, I had the same thought. Do you think it would make any difference if we tried now? And she said to him, we don't have anything to lose. And he says, does that mean you're willing to try? And she said, yes. So they discussed the uh, the love language concept, decided what their individual languages were, and said to each other, let's try to speak each other's language at least once a week. That was their goal. Once a week, and let's see what happens. They said within two months, we were on a second honeymoon. Hmm. Emotional warmth was back in our marriage. So, you know, it's a simple concept, but when you, when you work the concept, that is, you speak the other, each other's language, it really does change the emotional climate in the marriage. Now, Dr. Chapman, with marriages that uh, perhaps are second marriages where people are coming out of loss or cross-cultural marriages where there are, are just different things to overcome in terms of language and culture, does the love languages concept, as you've laid out, translate? Does it help to overcome some of these differences, or does it just add another layer of challenges to difficult situations, perhaps? 
You know what I think it does, Ian? I think it meets that deep emotional need that we have for love. And when that need is met, we can handle the other difficulties in the relationship much easier. Uh, you're right. In second and third marriages, there's, there's far more things to be dealt with, far more dynamics involved. And when it's a cross-cultural marriage, there's, again, more dynamics involved. It doesn't take away those dynamics. But if we meet that deep need for love and both of us feel secure in each other's love, then we create a positive emotional climate in which we can tackle the other difficulties in the relationship, and we're far more likely to find answers if we feel loved. If we don't feel loved, then the differences tend to lead us into discussions that often turn into arguments, and we say things that are negative to each other, and we eventually feel like, you know, this is not going to work. So to me, what the love language does, it doesn't solve all the problems, but it does create a positive emotional climate where the two of us are more likely to be able to hear each other and find solutions to our differences. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing I was reading your book, and, and uh, just for the sake of full disclosure, Ian and I have uh, attended some of your presentations through our church here in, uh, in Gaithersburg, and, uh, and we have a copy of, uh, of your book that, that we've, we've used. Um, but one thing I love about the five love languages is that, um, in particular, there's a quote that I found, and it sounds like it could really come from President Obama's lips or any any world leader. And uh, and the quote is, we need not agree on anything, but we must find a way to handle our differences so that they do not become divisive. And it sounds like, you know, in some ways, marriage is, is, is like an exercise in public diplomacy and cross-cultural understanding. Well, you know, in a sense, it is. Let's face it, when two people get married... They are coming from different cultures, even if they grew up in the same uh, town. You know, my wife and I grew up in the same small town in North Carolina. And yet when we got married, we found that there were vast differences of opinion and vast differences in the way we looked at life. And we struggled greatly in the early years of our marriage. So, yes, there is a sense in which marriage is negotiating cultural differences and trying to find a meeting place and trying to learn to work together as a team rather than as enemies. You know, when we get married, we're in love, and we intend to make each other happy. I've never met a couple who said to me, we're going to get married and make each other miserable. (laughs) You know, that's that's not our objective. But what happens is we get married, and these differences emerge, and we don't know how to solve them. So we try to tell the other person the way they should see it, They don't see it that way. They try to tell us we don't hear each other, and we conclude that, you know, maybe we made a mistake. Maybe we shouldn't be married. The reality is every marriage has to do with cultural differences and individual differences, personality differences, and all of those things have to be negotiated. But they are best negotiated when we feel secure in each other's love. Mm. Uh, Dr. Chapman, we, we personally thank you for the investment that you're making in, uh, in marriages around the world. Marriage is a beautiful thing, and, and particularly um, when you're married to the, uh, the right partner. Uh, and so we, we thank you for your time. And I know that you have uh, a radio show, and I wanted you to share uh, where our listeners can find your love minutes uh, and also learn a little bit more about uh, 
where you'll be traveling, uh, where your events will be held, etc. Yes, you can go to fivelovelanguages.com. You can spell out the word five or you can put in the number five, fivelovelanguages.com. And you can also take a free quiz there and determine what your primary love language is. I encourage couples to take it individually and then share with each other what their love language is. Well, thank you so much. And next time you come on the show, I want to talk a little bit more about your background in anthropology. I didn't know about that, uh, know that about you, and, uh, and I know you have some excellent travel stories to share, but we thank you for spending time with us today on World Footprints. Well, thank you, Tanya. Ian. You guys keep up the good work. After the break, we'll explore how volunteering is building communities on a global scale with Colin Salisbury, founder of the Global Volunteer Network. We're working in 22 countries. We work with partners who are on the ground, so we team up with partner organizations who are already doing something. Next on World Footprints Radio. Hi, I'm Callie Schultz from the great city of New Orleans, and you're listening to World Footprints Radio. We can't wait to see you in New Orleans very soon. World Footprints Radio is an award-winning broadcast and leader in socially conscious travel. Hosts Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick bring you entertaining and informative interviews with well-known celebrities, newsmakers, authors and industry professionals. From environmental leaders like Bobby Kennedy Jr. and David Rockefeller Jr. to conservationists like actress Stephanie Powers and director Ken Burns. Tune in to hear travel journalism at its best. Visit unique places from around the world and stop by the worldfootprints.com website for comprehensive travel information including special daily travel deals. Hi, this is Johnny from New Orleans. Welcome World Footprints and come visit us in New Orleans sometimes at French Quarter Festivals. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. During a volunteer trip to Ghana, Africa, our next guest, Colin Salisbury, witnessed a tremendous difference volunteers could make in helping local organizations achieve their goals. Upon returning home to New Zealand, Colin spent some time researching the different volunteer organizations around the world and was amazed at how expensive and limiting many programs were in terms of volunteer opportunities. Colin's time in Ghana was a aha moment for him, and in December 2000, he founded the Global Volunteer Network, also known as GVN. And today, GVN has placed over 2,000 volunteers in 22 countries around the world. Colin, welcome to World Footprints. Thank you very much. It's great to be on the show. First of all, GVN, Global Volunteer Network, is based in Wellington, New Zealand, a neighboring uh, city of Christchurch. So I first want to extend our best wishes and prayers to the residents of Christchurch. What can you tell us uh, about the, the current relief uh, and ongoing relief efforts and ongoing needs in that community? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's extensive, obviously, the the damage uh, from the quake and uh, I was personally down there last week. I spent Wednesday and Thursday in Christchurch. Um, in New Zealand we have two islands made up of the North Island and the South Island. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wellington is the capital and is based in the North Island. Christchurch uh, is one of our second largest cities and it is based in the middle of the South Island. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it, the quake is obviously uh, left devastating sort of uh, damage to the CPD and then uh, and more so to the lives of um, 
the 400,000 people who live there. And, uh, you know, it's, it's been quite uh, dramatic. I was in Haiti uh, just after that quake, and uh, there's quite a few different, quite a few similarities in a sense between the two. And just in, in the way uh, it has really upset people and they have to deal with, you know, the continuous aftershocks. I mean, the, the night I spent there last week, we had seven aftershocks shock just that evening. So it gave me a little taste of what people are dealing with on a daily basis. Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, certainly um, our best wishes go out to, to all of the people in New Zealand because I know New Zealand as a whole is uh, has been affected by this uh, this this tragedy and and uh, I I think the best thing that everyone can do for the country of New Zealand as a whole is to continue traveling there. So I just wanted to uh, wanted to comment on that. Um, so back to uh, Global Volunteer Network. Uh, who what is Global Volunteer Network? Can you kind of explain a little bit more about your your uh, structure? Absolutely, yeah. So we have two uh, entities, one based in in New Zealand, which is what the volunteering is run by. Um, that's the Charitable Trust in New Zealand. And then we have a uh, 501c3 registered non-profit uh, in the U.S., which is our fundraising arm. And so essentially we place uh, up to 2,000 volunteers every year, um, but we also raise money through a number of fundraisers that we do to support the projects um, so that as well as providing people in there to volunteer, we can also do other things like contribute in um, building schools and orphanages and, and, and supporting projects in that way as well. Well, t- tell us a little bit uh, about the projects that uh, that you have ongoing, because a lot of these projects, uh, you know, help find sustainable solutions to to uh, fight uh, poverty, disease, and environmental degradation. Uh, so, tell us a little bit about what you're doing. Sure. Yeah. So we're working in 22 countries. We work with partners who are on the ground. So we team up with partner organisations who are already doing something. So. Um, for example, um, in Nepal, we work with a partner there based in Kathmandu, and they, uh, as well as having a, a couple of orphanages that they run themselves, which are, which they set up as sort of model orphanages, they also work uh, in the community. And so our, our volunteers go in, we, they're trained, uh, go through a training program with them, and then they are placed out into projects. So everything from volunteering, uh, in an orphanage, to teaching in a rural school, um, to taking part in sort of environmental education. Um, so there's a whole range of uh, things that volunteers can do in, in, in the different communities. So that, that's, you know, an example in Nepal. Uh, another one is in Kenya. We work with a partner there. We have over 100 uh, orphanages and schools that we work with there. Um, in, the, in Nairobi itself and then out, just out in the outskirts as well. And so our partners uh, basically facilitate the volunteers coming in and then heading out and being placed mm-hmm. in these communities and working. Um, now, how do you area. how do you um, how do you find these partners and and how do how do you match the volunteers? Is there a vetting process or um, kind of walk us through the mechanics of uh, becoming a GVN volunteer? Sure, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, the first party question is in terms of partners. So 
We, we uh, would probably get two inquiries a day from partners who want to join our network. So, um, you know, we have an extensive list of, of organisations who want to work with us and who want to receive volunteers. So there's a whole uh, vetting process we go through in, in terms of which partners we end up working with and, and how that happens. And then on the volunteer side, um, we do go through a checking process. Um, anything to do with working with children, uh, we, you know, we uh, want to ensure that the volunteers have been vetted. So we go through all those kind of checks. Um, and there's a training uh, that happens during your first week in country. Um, plus, we do some online training as well prior to the event. So um, it, it's kind of quite a you know an extensive. Um, process, if you like, on both sides. Right, right. And and I know you do a lot of uh, emergency and relief uh, uh, projects, or, or you you have a lot of uh, efforts in, in that area. Um, what communities, uh, in addition to Christchurch, of course, uh, what communities, though, are you servicing on the emergency and relief side? Yeah, well, relief by its nature is, is sort of, uh, you know, short term. Um, so we were involved after the tsunami. Um, so we were working in the communities for 12 months on the coast of India. Um, and then um, after that, we were involved in the Peru, Peru earthquake. Um, and then we've had quite an extensive involvement in Haiti, mm-hmm. uh, which was a 12-month um, program where we placed over 500 volunteers uh, in Haiti itself. Um, but all those projects are currently uh, completed, so relief is very much focused on the initial um, phase. And then, but, but the main focus of what we do is more the longer-term developmental phase, which phases, which is really working with communities that are kind of uh, got certain aspects together but need help to work alongside of them to kind of move other things forward. Sure. Now, do volunteers, do you require that volunteers uh, have some level of experience in uh, specific areas depending on the project, or can anyone who just has a heart for giving uh, become a volunteer? Yeah, I I mean, the answer, I mean, to that question is we can place people uh, in, you know, who who really want to go. I mean, we do have uh, some areas that require some specialized you know, um, qualifications or experience, and so we would place those people in those things. But, um, you know, everything from, um, uh, you know, if, if you just you have a real heart for it and you don't want to teach in a school but you'd like to assist a teacher, then we can set those things up. Or um, A lot of the orphanages we're working in, you know, the staff just don't have any time to have personal interaction with the children, mm-hmm. which is so important. So, I mean, if, you know... Uh, you're, you know, someone who actually really uh, would just love to go and spend some individual time with some of the children, and that can be hugely beneficial for those children involved. Sure, sure. Now, I know you also have a, a foundation, uh, a nonprofit arm of uh, GVN or a foundation arm of GVN. Tell us a little bit about that and how that works and what the mission of the foundation is. Sure. So six years ago, we set up what we call the GVN Foundation, um, which was founded in Colorado, um, but it's you know uh, works across all um, all states. But 
and essentially it's a fundraising arm. So we have uh, we have a program called Eat So They Can, uh, which is a global dinner party that happens in October every year. And uh, you know, every year we have you know thousands of people who sign up to host dinners, and uh, you know, basically invite your family, invite your friends around. We'll give you a DVD which shows you some of the work we're doing, and you just ask people who are participating in the dinner um, to make a donation, and uh, that's all pulled together, and then it helps us work with children projects around the world. And then the other major thing we do is what we call uh, GVN Treks, which we do Kilimanjaro, Everest Base Camp, and Machu Picchu in Peru. And those are essentially an opportunity for you to do something that's on your life list, your mm-hmm. bucket list, if you like. Mm-hmm. And um, do the adventure. We use professional trekking companies for all those. But you also raise money for a project, and you get to go around and visit that project after the trek. Um, so those are the two major fundraisers for the okay. foundation. I, I love the uh, the kind of progressive dinner fundraiser. That just sounds so much fun to me. Now, some of these, uh, some of the trips um, to our, you know, a member of our listening audience who may think, oh, it's a little bit out of my budget. You know, I can't afford to trek up uh, Kilimanjaro or through Nepal. What types of uh, opportunities are available for, say, uh, someone on a student budget? Yeah, well, we have um, opportunities in South America, uh, which generally for, you know, U.S. citizens is, is not too far, not, not, you know, a very expensive flight away. Um, in Honduras, um, Guatemala, Peru, um, and uh, Costa Rica. So th- those are sort of places that you can get to relatively inexpensively. And generally, our, um, you know, a, a month's volunteering is around $1,000. So... It's not, uh, you know, it's not an, uh, an overly expensive exercise. It's just, mm-hmm. and if, if the flights are cheaper because they're closer, then that can help uh, with, you know, that regard. Oh, wow. It, it sounds wonderful, Colin. And, and um, I truly appreciate you uh, sharing the Global Volunteer Network with our listening audience. Um, we will have a link to Global Volunteer Network on our website, and as well as uh, your personal uh, guest page, and and so our listening audience members can certainly go there to uh, to sign up and volunteer. But other, what are some of the other ways that they can also support you? Yeah, well, the Global Dinner Party that I told you about, the um, website for that is uh, eatsotheycan.org, um, and you can sign up and. Uh, um, and host a dinner, which is a you know a wonderful way to do something locally, and um, you know that's focused on helping um, uh, women and children in need around the world. Um, and uh, you know if you did want to look at our foundation, then it's just gvnfoundation.org. Wonderful. Well, uh, Colin Salisbury, the founder and president of Global Volunteer Network, thank you so much for joining us today on World Footprints. You're welcome, and thank you for having me. Up next, the story of how one couple set out to circumnavigate the world and change their lives in the process. And all of a sudden, we we hopped on the boat, we started the engine, and it it ran the boat continuously for three weeks, and all of a sudden, we had nothing to do. It was like shifting from a sixth gear down to the first gear. Next on World Footprints Radio. Hey, this is Jay at the French Quarter Festival in New Orleans. You're listening to World Footprints. 
For the latest and last-minute travel deals, visit the WorldFootprints.com travel portal to find exclusive non-published sales on travel. Our dynamic travel deals page updates daily with the latest sales from our partners. You can't find these deals anywhere else, and we've seen sales for $9 per night for hotels and $49 airline tickets. So stop by WorldFootprints.com to see where you can go for less. Also, make sure you visit the Travel Marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services. Hi, this is Paul Harris from uh, Seven Oaks in England. We're once again here in New Orleans. I think it's my 35th or 40th, 40th time, and it's always a pleasure to come back. We always bring our, our musicians with us, and it's a great pleasure to uh, meet uh, our friends from World Footprints, and uh, wish you all the success with your show, and uh, looking forward to seeing you again sometime. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Life is a journey, and those who choose to pursue their dreams achieve the greatest treasure of all, a richer life full of wonderful adventures. Our next guests are two people who spent years planning for one of their lifelong dreams, a trip around the world. Eric and Christy Grab left their successful careers to circumnavigate the world by boat. With only basic skills, the couple spent two years crossing oceans in a 43-foot trawler powerboat. They explored 110 destinations and met numerous people along the way. And the first half of their two-year adventure is chronicled in their book, The Unexpected Circumnavigation. Part 1, San Diego to Australia. And I'm happy to welcome Eric and Christy to our show. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Eric, I, I, I love the fact that you're both planners. I, anyone who knows me knows that I'm a planner, too, and so that always resonates with me. But I realized early on in reading this book that you're also very uh, contemplative because it took you four years before you proposed to Christy. What's that about? <laughs> well, there was, you know, I'm definitely a planner. Everything's got to be just right. And I remember um, trying to get the ring and having it be the right moment. And uh, <laughs> you know, she was getting impatient, but I was able to find the right moment on a beach in uh, Key West to propose. And so I had to have it just right. And so that's why I waited so long. Oh, bless. By well, the time he proposed, I had totally given up. I thought he was never going to ever <laughs> propose. So when he actually did pop the question, I said, are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> Bless you guys. Well, I mean, seriously, I know, you know, when you both decided that you wanted to travel by boat around the world, you spent a lot of time researching boat models. Why did you select a power boat versus a sailboat, which is kind of the traditional boat to navigate waters with? Well, there were a few reasons. Um, we thought it was impossible to do it on a power boat. So when we started doing research, we realized, uh, you know, that very few people do this. But when we started to look into things more carefully, we realized the powerboat was a little faster, about 50% faster. It also means there were less things to uh, worry about in terms of sailing. Sailing can be uh, pretty tough, and it could be uh, pretty dangerous Mm -hmm. um, in the open seas with uh, the sails and uh, shifting winds. So when we started to look at the comfort level, some of the safety issues, uh, and the speed, we decided that's what we're going to do. Hmm. And Christy, I know it's always been your dream to travel the world before you had children, but it was actually a family event in 2000 that really gave you the, the courage. It was kind of your springboard to act upon this dream. Can you tell us about 
that uh, that epiphany you had in 2000? Well, at Thanksgiving dinner, out of nowhere, my mom blurted out, I have cancer, I'm going to die in six months. And we were just shocked because cancer doesn't run in our family. And my mom was, you know, she was a, a health nut and she had an organic garden in her yard and she took vitamins and exercise. She, she never smoked. She did everything right. And so for her to get cancer was kind of a reality check that it can happen to anyone. And she did live for 14 months before she passed on. And she was very, very bitter that she had waited for retirement to live her dreams because retirement never came for her. She was 59 when she died. Mm. So we we realized we needed to live our dreams now and, and never put them off. Well, you know, the, the, another thing I love about your story is your sh- sheer determination to live that dream despite the naysayers around you. What gave you guys the courage to continue moving forward despite the, the criticism that came from not only other boaters, but your family and friends? I can't speak for Eric, but I'm stubborn, and when I get an idea in my head, I'm out of it. <laughs> I guess I can attest to that. Um, <laughs> A, part, a lot of it had to do with, you know, we, we want to do this adventure. We, we actually are risk takers, even planners. We like to take uh, planned risks, and we, we are somewhat uh, adventurous, I, I'd have to say. And so, you know, a lot of people, I, I think, projected a lot of their fears onto us, and they weren't necessarily fears we had. So mm-hmm. they said, well, you know, you, how could you go to these countries, and all these people are going to, you know, rob you, and, and uh, it's going to be violent. And we're like, no, we're not. We're pretty sure that's not how it is. Um, and we definitely did find out, you know, around the world people are very nice. It's generally very safe. Uh, people do travel all the time. Um, you know, there wasn't many problems that a lot of people projected on us of, you know, you're not going to find food, you're not going to find, uh, you're not going to have a good time, it's, it's going to be too dangerous. And we just found that wasn't true. And, and we talked to enough people at the beginning that said, you know, this is, this is very doable. We met, uh, there was a few couples uh, that were very influential for us that, that you know, showed us that uh, it is possible to do what we did. Mm-hmm. And so you you actually launched this dream trip on April 28, 2007, and you headed south uh, from San Diego. What were some of the adjustments you guys had to make, and, and what were some of the challenges you encountered during the first few months? Eric, Christy, either one of you guys? Well, one of the big things was we were running at a very, very fast pace in our life. We were both working full-time, and we were preparing for this trip and so you can imagine, you know, it was it was either work or, or boat preparations and trip preparations. And all of a sudden, we, we hopped on the boat, we started the engine, and it and we ran the boat continuously for three weeks. And all of a sudden, we had nothing to do. <laughs> and it was it was like shifting from uh, sixth gear down into first gear, and and it, we were just all of a sudden going very slow. And that actually took a while for us to unwind. And obviously, everything was new for us. And so it was, you know, there was definitely. Uh, you know, moments where there were, you know, it was all a little bit scary because we didn't know what was going to happen. And, and, you know, thankfully the boat was very comforting because we could always go back to our own bed and, and had a few things around us that we recognized. But it was definitely an adjustment um, at the pace, I'd say, one of, one of the harder things. Mm-hmm. And, Christy, what were some of the, the places you visited in the first few months? In the first six months, we were in the South Pacific, and we went to 18 different tropical islands. Uh, We went to many islands in the country of French Polynesia. Uh, And French Polynesia is very sparsely populated in the majority of the islands. 
but it has first world infrastructure, so they're really unique places. Uh, then we went on to um, a, uh, a, um, uh, a, a national uh, wildlife preserve in the Cook Islands, and then we went to Niue, which is the smallest country in the world with only 1,800 people. Then we went to Tonga, Fiji, and Vanuatu. Mm. And were these places um, mapped out? Because the title of your book is The Unexpected uh, Circumnavigation. And I'm wondering, it it almost sounds like your your travels were spontaneous. But I know that Eric is a planner. So uh, why that title uh, for for your book? Well, uh, there was a few things that were unexpected. One was our age. We were a little bit uh, younger than the than the average uh, couple that goes out. We, you know, we were in our 30s, and we met most couples were in our, their 50s, 60s, and 70s. And uh, second was our pace was uh, relatively quick by most uh, boating standards. Most people, uh, when they take a sailboat around, they go in about three years, and we did it in two. But because our boat was faster, our ratio of time on land versus sea was actually pretty good. In fact, 75% of our time we were um, on in port on land. Um, and then uh, third, we were on a powerboat, which no one expected. And in fact, even when we were pretty much all the way around the world, we were in Panama after we had crossed every ocean, and people were telling us, well, you can't cross an ocean with that boat. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we, had, we had obviously done it, but still people were very skeptical. And so at least on those things, those were those were many reasons why people never expected us to do what we were doing. So we were pretty much a, a little bit of a spectacle almost everywhere we went. Hmm. Hmm. And Eric forgot the part about how we didn't have any hands-on boating experience when we left. So that four years that we spent planning was mostly theoretical learning. <clears throat> and uh, the hands-on application didn't come until we actually left for the journey. So we left with no experience, and everybody expected us to fail. I mean, people were taking bets that we you know, wouldn't make it around. So that's where the title came from. Uh-huh. Uh, but we had planned our route early on. We hadn't planned the individual stops along the route, but we we planned the route we were going to take around the world uh, as one of the first things in our in our uh, planning stage. Mm-hmm. And and I wanted to point out too, you actually had a another um, companion who did have uh, quite significant boating experience. Richard, I believe is his name is. And um, how, how did that work with the three of you guys? And I know some of our listening audience members are thinking, okay, a married couple can find space that amount of time. How did, how did that work for you guys? What were the dynamics? Well, you know, it was it was there for you know primarily a safety reason is to have a third person aboard, especially on that first. That Richard was with us for about five weeks in that first passage that uh, took three weeks to cross uh, the first part of the Pacific, and it was very interesting. You know, it's nice to have somebody there to be on watch. We would do four-hour watches, and so that was you could have eight hours off in your off watch, which was very nice. And so sometimes you didn't interact as much with everyone aboard as you may think. And so sometimes we would just, you know, off, be off in our little staterooms, uh, either sleeping or maybe getting some food. But it was interesting. I think over time, uh, you know, obviously things get a little bit uh, tense at some points because we were, you know, we're all in a pretty tight and closed space and we're all eager to get to land. Uh, but we actually had a great time with Richard, and we were really glad he was there. In fact, we really couldn't have done that first passage without him. And so uh, we really, you know, we're sort of kindred spirits because we, we did this uh, uh, this really long crossing. Mm-hmm. 
Now, was there a, a place or experience that was transformative for you throughout the, the two years? I know we're only focusing on part one uh, today, but throughout that entire journey, was there a place that just really touched you or, or, or an experience or an introduction you had to another person that was, was transformative? There are two different facets that we found transformative. The first was um, that everybody's the same everywhere around the world. Everybody just wants to be happy and have healthy children. And 99.9% of the people in the world are good people, and most of the conflict, I, we believe, and from what we saw, really stems from um, cultural misunderstandings, and that when you make the effort to bridge the cultural divide, it's... You know, people just embrace you and, you know, want to be nice to you and, and want to make you feel loved and special. And that was really neat to see that every culture is, is good. Um, the other thing, I think, was the power of Mother Nature and seeing we went to the rim of an active volcano and we were uh, in some lightning storms and some other situations where we realized, wow, you know, the Earth is this special thing beyond us, and as humans, we try to control it, but we can't. I mean, she is all-powerful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how about for you, Eric? Well, there, I definitely agree with that, and there was, you know, the, the volcano was a big uh, adventure. Uh, you know, it was just the raw power of the, the rumblings. You've never heard such a low grumbling explosions and we were right next to it we, we the lava was actually shooting up over our heads and uh and you know people die where we were because they get hit with uh, pieces of lava it's, it was pretty scary um also there was a moment uh, where we actually had a little bit of a crisis um where we thought the boat was in trouble and actually it was in trouble it was dragging along a mooring this was in italy and in stromboli and we actually had a another boater there um and we helped each other out we both essentially saved each other. Um, he was able to help us get back to our boat, and his boat actually broke its line and actually drifted out to sea. And this is all at night during a, um, a little a storm, essentially. And so we went and rescued his boat, and uh, he then had another problem, and we ended up towing him in. And it was this really intense evening where we had just so many things. And, and in the end, it was, you know, we helped each other out, and everything was fine. No one got hurt. Um, nothing was really damaged. And so... Uh, you know, but at the time it was just very, very tense, and just watching, um, you know, people come together, and and we had people help us all the way around, and that was just amazing. Mm. I mean, it it sounds like this trip, in some ways, changed the way you guys uh, viewed the world before you you embarked. Um, is that a an accurate statement? Would you say? I think it reinforced some things we we thought. You know, we 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 kind of went going that we assumed people were pretty you know, going to be pretty nice, and we it just reaffirmed a lot of things. I think it gave us, it, it was actual evidence, you know, you, you have these things in theory, and then you have in practice, and, and we watched a lot of things happen in practice um, to reaffirm a lot of our beliefs, and 
Uh, I mean, it still, though, was a transformative trip. I mean, I don't think we're ever going to be the same after doing what we did. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is there anything new that you learned about yourself or about each other during the course of that trip? You know what's interesting is in our life here in the States, we were busy all the time climbing the career ladder and involved in lots of activities. And when we went out to sea, we had, you know, sometimes weeks where we had absolutely nothing to do. And during that time where you have absolutely nothing to do, you realize the things that you choose to do are the things that really reflect who you are as a person. And we were both surprised that the things that we chose were different than we expected. So I started writing all the time. Um, I mean, I always liked writing, but it became a passion because I had time to pursue it. And I never... Uh, had pursued it before simply, I think, mostly because of time. And I don't know, Eric, for you? Um, well, I mean, you know, as far as our relationship together, I mean, we, we spent essentially 24 hours a day, seven days a week together <laughs> for, for two years. In fact, there'd be some funny moments where we'd split up for 10 minutes and we'd come back to each other and say, oh, my gosh, what'd you do in that 10 minutes? Tell us, tell us everything. <laughs> it, was, it was amazing how connected we were. And that was actually one of the harder things to adjust to when we came back is actually being apart. Um, and we had our, you know, we had a few fights and things, and you know, we realized that you know you can't just let things go. You know, when you're when you're on the boat, you have to kind of work them out right then and there. And uh, you know, there was there were times when we were the most, I guess, stressed and the weakest in terms of you know the seas were big, the conditions were tough. We had something maybe go a little wrong, and um, you know, you see how you react to that. And in those in those really tough moments, you know, something spilled on the ground and the boat's rocking like crazy. You know, and, and that we, you know, we worked things out. You know, we, we got mad at each other a little bit sometimes. We also really realized we had to do that a little bit. You know, you had to vent a little bit. And then you say you're sorry, and then you realize everything's fine and everything's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that, you know, I think our relationship is actually stronger. I think after we did this trip, uh, a lot of people do ask us, you know, oh my gosh, did you kill each other? And we're like, no, absolutely not. <laughs> and, and I mean, it, it's such, your story is so inspirational on a number of levels. Um, I want to jump ahead to uh, to your next book or books. I don't know if there's going to be a part two. Well, I know there's will be a part two, but at a part three as well. But um, on the back of the book that I have, part one, there is a navigation map and it shows that you actually traveled through the Gulf of Aden and the Red Sea. And with pirates, the issue of pirates in the news a lot, I'm wondering how did you protect yourself uh, against the possibility of, uh, of being hijacked? Uh, good question. Well, the first thing to realize is that, you know, the, the odds of that happening are actually relatively low. In fact, it's, it's kind of interesting these things are in the news because they are relatively um, infrequent events. Um, it is a bit of a controversy of how you protect yourself aboard, and there's different camps of whether you bring guns or not bring guns. Um, our opinion was to not bring them. Uh, a lot of cases you need to check your gun in at every country. Um, we didn't like the dynamic of, of you know, the, one of the first things you do is when you check in the country, you, do all, you meet all these people, and the first thing you say, oh, I have this gun. We don't like that dynamic. We also don't like having the notion of having to use the gun in our thought process. I mean, if start, something starts happening, someone approaches us, you know, we'd worry about, you know, should we start shooting at them? And we really, we never had any problems. There was never once, not even close to once, where we thought having a gun would help us out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think really it's just 
you know, we had a few other things to protect us. I mean, if someone really came aboard, I mean, we had obviously tools and we had some pepper spray and spear gun and, you know, flare guns and things. A bat. A bat, yeah. So I don't, but we really, you know, protecting ourselves was more about trying to be at the right place um, during the right time. I mean, we, we did go through the Gulf of Aden um, and there were pirate attacks uh, just recently before we went through and a lot of boats were debating about what to do and uh, most went and in fact all of them went and we went as well and um, we didn't have any problems and neither did they. I've met a few people recently who are looking to do uh, have a similar experience as you guys did. What advice would you offer to them before they embark upon a worldwide boating adventure? Um, in boating there's a lot of choices that have to be made. I mean, in life in general, there's a lot of choices that have to be made, but it's intensified in boating, and that includes um, every boat, uh, you have to make sacrifices because no boat has everything that you could ever want on it. And so I guess, you know, being, having realistic expectations of what you are and are not willing to sacrifice to travel in that lifestyle and um, to do your research and your homework, uh, particularly about the cultural mores of the places that you're going. We feel like we had a great experience because we were uh, very careful about cultural mores and we saw other people not have as good of an experience because they had not spent as much time preparing for that culture. Yeah, I'd say, I mean, be humble. (laughs) That helps. Um, You know, smile. (laughs) Learn a few uh, words in every language. We think the most important word in the world is is learn how to say thank you in every language you possibly can. Uh, Mm -hmm. It tends to be when you go someplace uh, especially by boat, you know, like I said, there is a routine. It's just like an airplane. You come in, you have to check in with immigration, customs, potentially quarantine, port captain. There's all these things you have to do. So before you even get off and start having fun, uh, most likely you're interacting with officials and, you know, different countries have different procedures. And so that uh, getting started there is, is, you know, being nice to these people and, um, you know, trying to trying to say thank you as many times as you can and uh, they really appreciate it and it made uh, the experience for us uh, very positive. Absolutely and I, I would agree with that and I, I thank you guys so much for joining us today and sharing your story and I know part two will be coming out when Christy? Well it's coming along slowly but steadily so it should be out in the next few months. Oh my. Yeah, we have a lot of a lot of people excited about the second book because uh, you know we got really great reviews on the first book and people are excited and kind of it, it leaves on a, a little bit of a cliffhanger, and so we people are kind of waiting for the next uh, next installment. So we're excited that we're almost done with that. And Christy's been working really hard uh, to get the next out, next book out. Well, we certainly look forward to having you uh, come back on the show to to talk about the second half of your adventure. And uh, in the interim, before we go, please, uh, Christy, uh, share your website so our listeners can um, uh, can kind of follow what you guys are doing right now. Is www.cosmos with a K dot liveflux.net, and that is, uh, I'll spell it out www.kosmos.l, like Larry, I V E S L U X. Okay, and we also have a link to uh, your book uh, okay. on your get, the guest page of your website and also the show page uh, where this um, where our listeners are enjoying your interview today. Eric and Christy Grab, authors of The Unexpected Circumnavigation, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you.
you for having us. Thank you. Thank you for sharing this special time with us today. We always look forward to seeing you here and to connecting with you on our multiple platforms and social networks. And certainly, we'll look forward to connecting with you during our New Orleans live broadcast during French Quarter Festival this coming Saturday, April 9th from 11 to 1 Central Time. You can listen to us live from blogtalkradio.com backslash world footprints. We're Tanya Nian Fitzpatrick, and we'll see you on the air again real soon. And until then, we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada, Banff National Park, natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps, that are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio is a presentation of Travel and On Media Productions, LLC. All rights reserved.